Okay, well, let's do this one more time, okay? You ready? You know what I'm going to say. Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Lamentations, that book that was kind of stuck together a month, uh, a semester ago, right? Kind of sticky and buried between the prophets there. And hopefully uh, Lamentations uh, has not just become familiar to you and, and maybe those pages in your Bible are a little more worn than they were at the beginning. I'm just curious. I've not asked you guys this in, in probably a month. How many of you have read through Lamentations at least once every week since the beginning of our journey? Awesome. Josh and Rob, okay. I owe you guys lunch or something. So uh, Anyway, well, good job on that. Um, and those of you, I know many uh, of, of you as well uh, were faithful to do that regularly, if not weekly, regularly. So thank you for that. That's a great way to learn a book, especially that's unfamiliar. Just read through it. Read through it over and over and over. Lamentations is short. It's repetitive. It's old Hebrew poetry. And who wants to... I'll tell you, I am a fan of Hebrew poetry. As a math science guy, as a former recovering engineer that used to avoid poetry like the plague, when I became a Christian, God helped me to see that He inspired poetry. And if He inspired it, I probably needed to pay attention to it. And now that I've kind of learned how it works, it, it, is, it is one of the most beautiful literatures in our whole Bible. So I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, it's repetitive, but uh, this is a book that uh, has a lot to teach us. Okay, so we're going to do our jet tour. I was trying to think, um, you know, when you think of jets, and, and when I think of jets, I think of, you know, fast fighter jets that carry missiles and stuff like that. And, and But but that's that's not, yeah, I got an amen from Roger back there. Okay. Um, yeah, Sidewinders and Sparrows, 101. Uh, anyway, um, but... Um, but but I was thinking, you know, if Roger had his had his F-16 like like he used to fly, you know, maybe if you had the trainer model, you throw somebody in the back seat, right? But but you can't take a lot of passengers unless you strap them on the pylons, and that's no fun. So um, so I thought, what's a what's a cool passenger plane as we think about our jet tour today? And I don't know about you, I think the coolest passenger plane ever created is the Concorde. Uh, sadly, we don't fly the Concorde anymore. I think they're redesigning a, a supersonic. Uh, airline now but um so that's the concord and uh so we're gonna i wish we could go on a ride but we're not we're gonna take a a figurative jet tour through the book of lamentations now um i'm just curious this is this is the part where uh, like i i love this part of teaching okay because as a teacher uh you you uh, the best teachers love their subjects and they love their students right and hopefully they love teaching so this is the part where i want to hear from you what are your takeaways from the book of Lamentations? So I, I, what, what, what are you going to walk away with? And maybe it's in my notes, maybe it's not. But just for you personally, I'd just love to hear from a few of you. What, what did you learn? What was helpful? What are you going to remember? Um, make me proud, okay? No pressure, but make me proud. So uh, what, what do you got? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. We call it godly complaining, right? The word complain in our culture has sort of morphed from what it meant generations ago. Complain today almost always carries a negative nuance. But both in the Bible and in 
earlier times, complain had two different senses. It could have a sort of a grumbling, discontented, you know, I'm probably sinning. But in the Bible, it's also used in, in just sort of a crying out to God in a moment of desperation. And that, that as you mentioned, uh, that, that can be and ought to be a godly thing we do. We're not accusing God, we're not angry at Him, but we're crying out to Him honestly in our grief and our sorrow. And that's a very good thing to do. Re- remember, the, you remember what the word lament actually means? What's lament mean? What's that? Well, the beginning, of the, yeah, the beginning of the, of the chapter is how, but the, the actual word lament or lamentations means what? Close. Yeah, it's an expression of grief. A, a lament is an expression of grief. So I can grieve. See, I'm grieving. But when I express it, it becomes lament. Okay? And, and usually, uh, or not usually, often a, a way lament happens is through song or poetry, which is why, why this whole book is poetry and, and whatnot. So, um, so that, that, that's the takeaway, right? Is, is we ought to engage in that. You know, we're a very, um, we don't do grief very well in our culture. And, and one of the things we learn from these examples in the Bible is, uh, grieving is something that ought to be expressed in appropriate and godly ways, and uh, one way we do that is through lament, right, and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, Mary Kay and I are new. We were only here last week. Yeah. But my takeaway was exactly that point that you yeah. just mentioned there, that we try to, in our society, oh, if you're sad or if you're grieving, we want to medicate it away. Like it's right. some problem yep. you know, we have to deal with. Oh. So my takeaway yeah. this week was exactly that. Good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the theology of sadness to where, you know, we don't have a theology of sadness today. We, we, we have things are good or mental illness, but we don't have anything in between. And, and what the Bible does is it, it um, validates this category called normal godly sorrow. And, uh, and that's so for, so for being here like one Sunday. Awesome. All right. I'm great, grateful for that. Yeah. Grant. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. His redemptive purpose, Israel. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think in a book like this that it's like you know God drops the the nuclear bomb and says you know I'm done, but it's not that that even as shocking as the the graphics of this book demonstrate in terms of the horror of war, the, the, um, the violence, the um, death, the, yeah, the desperate, all, all those things in, in the Babylonian captivity, that all of that was designed with God's good disciplinary purpose involved. And that's why we see scattered throughout the book that, that hope of redemption. And even Jeremiah, if we back up into Jeremiah's book, we'll review this today, um, the, the, the pinnacle of Jeremiah's book and his message is Jeremiah 31, where he talks about the new covenant, the gospel, uh, that, that this is not hopeless. And, um, and, and Lamentations reminds us that even in the horror of what happened, uh, there's still hope. Other takeaways? Yes. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's good too, is that, you know, whenever we see this, you know, one of the neat things about the Bible is the Bible usually gives us clear commentary on why God is doing something. Uh, when things happen today, we usually don't have direct commentary on why that is. So one of the things that helps us is, is to see that, that this disaster, this lament, this horror is not purposeless. And if we extrapolate that and say, okay, let's, let's map that from what we know, what we can say is there's always a purpose, isn't there? With, with whatever happens, and, and, and let's, let's particularize, particularize, can I, can I make that into a verb? Let, let's, let's make this specific and, and, and say it like this. Your sorrow and grief always has a purpose. Your lament is not uh, random and meaningless. And, and one of the things that we're supposed to see, even as horrible things happen and we rightly grieve and mourn, is what is God doing in the midst of this? And I hope this, this book, like the whole rest of the Bible, has demonstrated one more time that, that God always has a purpose even in hard things. And, and often that's the hope that we find is that, you know how it is, L- lament, grief, sorrow, discouragement, it, it's, it's very disorienting. And when we lose our bearing spiritually, one of the things we, we are prone to believe is that it's just all meaningless. But it's not. And that's where we, we can't follow our emotions and our feelings. We have to turn back to Scripture and remember God does have a purpose. And, and we saw that in chapter 3. We'll review that again. So, Okay, well, that, that makes me feel great. I, I, I'm, hope, I'm hoping you're walking away from this with something. And, and maybe if the memory is a little fuzzy or you're new or something like that, um, the, the jet tour here will remind you of some of the things that we discussed, okay? So what is this book about? The the author of the book of Lamentations is Mr. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of God called to minister to the southern kingdom. Uh, That's the kingdom of Judah. You'll recall that the nation of Israel was divided after Solomon's rule, and that wasn't a good thing. It was was kind of a civil war deal, and now you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Both of those kingdoms were largely uh, led by ungodly kings, and in the wake, uh, the, the decades and centuries following the separation of the kingdom, God raised up the prophets to call the people back and even call the kings back to the Lord. Well, and and uh, the northern kingdom failed to heed the message, so God brought in the Assyrians to remove them, take them off into captivity, leaving the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. Same thing, the prophets preached, the prophets preached, and Jeremiah was called to preach to that southern kingdom that they would repent or else the Lord's discipline would happen. Uh, Jeremiah's main book in the Bible, of course, is called Jeremiah. Could you, you guys are Bible scholars, aren't you? That's awesome. Yes, yeah, um, and uh, it, is, it is one of the most um, painful books in the Bible to read if, you're, if you've read it because... This is a faithful man that must have felt like every day that nothing was working. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, this is our, how long have we been here? 22 years in the church? Um, Jeremiah's ministry was double that, over 40 years. And he saw literally no success, as we would define it in our world. No converts, no people listening to the message, no life transformation, nobody saying, great job, Jeremiah, I'm so glad you're my prophet, thank you for teaching me the, the word of the Lord every day. None of that. 
It, it was not just the absence of, of thankfulness. It was men and women that made up mocking songs about the prophet. And they would sing those mocking songs to Jeremiah as he would come into the city to preach. Uh, and then again, you know, Jeremiah's retirement years were spent watching the nation of Jerusalem, uh, that city there, burn in devastation. So it's a very hard book, and yet we see a faithful man, not a perfect man. One of the things you notice about Jeremiah is he struggled with the same things you and I would struggle with. But he was faithful in his ministry, and that message of the new covenant meant that uh, there was hope even for a nation that would not... I mean, you, you imagine that? Remember what God says to Isaiah? Um, I got a job for you. What's that? Um, I want you to go and preach to my people. Okay, doesn't sound too bad. Just one thing. They aren't going to listen to you. Like the first couple of days? No, like ever. Oh. Um, in fact, um, they have hardened hearts. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They're not going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to make you the problem. They're going to hurt you. They're going to threaten your family. They're going to make your life miserable. What do you think? That's the prophets, guys. And, and I'll tell you, we can learn from people like that that despite comfort, success, uh, ministry encouragement, you know, you guys minister, you know, you teach that Awana kid, you know, you do that women's Bible study, whatever, and it's, oh, thank you, Carl, that's so great. You'll thank you, David, for that. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a joy in seeing God work through your ministry, isn't there? So imagine your whole life is you don't see any of that. And the only thing that keeps you going is what? God has asked me to do this. And, and maybe not on that scale, but uh, every single one of us, I, I can almost guarantee this, you will have seasons of your life when the only thing that keeps you doing the right thing is knowing that God has called you to it. Right? We need we need people like that to help us when that's our season and when we're not seeing success and we're not seeing life go our way, but we know it's the right thing to do because our God in the Scripture has called us to it. And uh, so we learn that from guys like Jeremiah. Uh, he was called to prophesy to the nations. We see that back in Jeremiah, especially to the southern kingdom. He preached during the reign of Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, uh, the kings of Judah, he ministered for over four decades from about 625 to 586 B.C. And did you bring your distance glasses today? Um, so this is a, um, a mess is what it is. Actually, it's awesome if you could see it. So what this is, is uh, this is a timeline. You can see the numbers up here. And then the yellow path here represents the kings of the northern kingdom, right? So guys like uh, Jeroboam, the first one there, and then uh, all the way up to the Assyrian captivity where God removes the northern kingdom. The green stripe here represents the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah, that's right, uh, starting with Rehoboam and then up to uh, Zedekiah, who was the last one before uh, the Babylonians came in. Now what's interesting is you see the, these little things here, that they look like flags. These are actually the, the, where the prophets fit in. So uh, the, these men and women that 
uh, God used here. So there's, uh, there's Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. So you can kind of see where did their book and ministry fit into the timeline. Nahum, Jeremiah. So this is what we're really interested in here. You see Jeremiah goes all the way up to the Babylonian captivity. Of course, Daniel. Daniel's ministry mainly takes place when? At, in the Babylonian captivity right here, right? And Obadiah and Ezekiel. And then where Pastor Terry has been in Zechariah, he just finished Zechariah. Of course, that's over here. Once the people come back to the land, they're, they're not in captivity anymore. They come back into the land and they're rebuilding the temple. So these three prophets, we call those the post-exilic prophets but because they come what? After the exile, right? Post-exile, right? So there we go. So anyway, so that's awesome. So if we zoom in here, because I know you can't read that. And uh, so here we are, right? Here, here's, the, here's those kings that were a part of Jeremiah's reign. We see Jeremiah's ministry here, so about 625 to 580. Well, 586 would be right here. Obviously, he lived longer than that and, and ministered to some degree after that, but the temple is destroyed probably in 586 there. And you see that, okay? So that gives us a little bit idea of where this book is written. You say, so, so what about Lamentations? Where does Lamentations come? So Lamentations is written where? Lamentations is written sometime around here. Because Jeremiah is writing as the city is under siege and is being destroyed. Um, just some history. Um, his, the, the book here of Lamentations is really um, uh, sort of the, the final piece of his prophecy. And uh, we know if we go all the way back to the book of Joshua that Israel was told by Joshua and Moses that, that, um, that they would be faithful, that they would be faithless at some point. And so that prophecy, way back in the book of Joshua, uh, 800 years later, is fulfilled in the captivities there. Jeremiah preached to the people, warning them to repent. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem happens there, and uh, those are some historic references in the Bible if you want to read about that actually happening. And then Jeremiah witnesses the destruction of the city, and that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Okay, So, uh, so there we are in our little... Uh, timeline there okay so if we if we piece this together just in terms of the main events jeremiah is called by god about 625 bc we can read about that in jeremiah chapter one babylon begins invading judah at about 605 remember there were three sieges against the city it took three sieges to finally take the city the first one starts in 605 the next one about 10 years later and then finally in 586 the the walls are breached and um uh, Babylon invades the city. Uh, remember that happened in part by forcing a, um, a cutting off of the food and water supply, which is why when you read in the book of Lamentations, you read about you know even children uh, dead in the streets for, for lack of nourishment, and that's because like in a lot of, in many wars, uh, including wars that are going on today, one of the challenges is getting uh, proper food and, and water and clothing, etc two people that are in war-torn cities. And then finally, Jeremiah is forced to go to Egypt in 583. Uh, we read about that in Jeremiah 43 there. Okay, so that's where we've been. That's kind of the background. And uh, when we think about the actual book of Lamentations, there's five chapters. And one of you mentioned this a moment ago. It is an acrostic. And uh, I, I, I can't well, it's acrostic Sunday, right? Because we're finishing Lamentations. Pastor Terry's doing Psalm 119, which is probably, it's the largest and most beautiful acrostic uh, in the whole Bible. You say, what's an acrostic? Acrostic is when each verse starts with a succeeding 
letter in the alphabet. And you say, I can't read that, Keith. I know. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be your tour guide. So you can see this. And, and you're thinking, why are we starting over here? Because remember, Hebrew is read right to left. Okay, so we don't start over here. We start over here. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. Those are the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, so you can see there's the Aleph, there's the Beit, there's the Gimel, there's the Daleth, there's the Hay. So each, each one, it would be like saying line one starts with A, line two starts with B, line three starts with C, etc. if it was written in English. You say, why would the author fuss? That seems like a lot of work because that's what artists do. Artists are brilliant when it comes to this sort of thing. And one of the ways that uh, we make literature beautiful and um, interesting is to put it in a structure like this. And this is how many places in the Bible structure their literature. So all of these are acrostic psalms in one form or another. Now what's interesting is chapter 1 starts with what? The word what? How? Chapter 2 starts with what? How? Chapter 3 starts with I. Chapter 4 starts with how? Good, you can read. Chapter 5 starts with remember, right? And that, that's important because even how the book starts communicates to us something of what lament is like. Why would, would the first two chapters of the book, which are largely about the chaos and emotional turmoil and destruction and violence of the Babylonian, Babylonian invasion, why would it be starting with this? How? Because that's what you say in your day of trouble. That's what I say. Uh, grief and struggle and affliction is, is disorienting. And one of the first things that sort of just automatically comes out of our hearts is, how can this happen? Why is this happening? What can I do? And so the book reflects something of the normal human response in that. Now, what's interesting is how this works because, um, and this is, you know, I'm serious when I bring the whiteboard in, right? Uh, <laughs> some of you are like, what's Pastor Keith doing with the whiteboard? Some of you know my reputation. So, uh, what's interesting is how, how, how this book is actually arranged. Okay? The book's actually arranged like that. And I don't know, what do you call that? I have no idea what that is. But that's how it's arranged, okay? It, it's a shape. This is another way. Music has shape. Poetry has shape. Literature has shape. And, and those of you that are good at that, you know what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, part of the shape of, of the book is this acrostic, the structure. It's interesting. What? Why would God put in his inspired word such precise structure within a book that is all about the, the disorienting and crazy confusion of lament and grief? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna engage in some sanctified guessing here. But 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 I think that this is intentional to the degree that even when it feels purposeless, it feels chaotic, it feels random, it feels like God isn't there, there is what? Structure and order and purpose. So again, we, we can't be sure, but maybe that's part of why God did that, to, to show us uh, that there is, there is a, um, a, a purpose and a control that God is uh, utilizing even in grief. But here's what's interesting. So we've got... We've got, here's chapter one. Well, let's just do it like this. So we're going to do one, two, three, four, and five. 
So the, the book ascends and then descends like a mountain. So here we have what? How, right? And chapter 1 is all about what's going on. How can this happen? What's God doing? I don't get it. I don't understand. This is crazy. Chapter 2 is what? And chapter 2, as we'll look at again today, the violence increases. Jeremiah gets more specific about the violence. That there, There's parents that are cannibalizing the bodies of their children that have died because there's no food and... and it's horrible. And then we get here, and chapter 3 actually has two parts to it. Well, let's... So right here, it's what? It's I. Because I means Jeremiah, as, as he's viewing this and he's seeing this, and he's he gets to the point where he goes, I'm not sure I can take this anymore. And remember, that's where he, he reaches that low point, what we call spiritual depression, Right? And, and he's struggling here, right? He's, he's really struggling. And then that pinnacle of the book, the, that very the, sort of the capstone, is what? God's character and his promises. And then we see sort of going back down into, um, we'll remind you here of some questions that we ask in grief, right? And then chapter 4 is what? How again, right? You see the symmetry? See, that's kind of a mirror in it. So it climbs up, pinnacles at Jeremiah's personal struggle. Then he remembers the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, right? Therefore I have hope. That's the pinnacle here. And then it begins to come back down. So what do we do then? How do we respond? How do we think about our grief and our lament in light of the character and promises of God and those questions? Then we come back here to where it's a mirror image, right? So it's how and more destruction and more difficulty. And then you'd think that for the sake of, of the, again, the symmetry of the poem, that this would be a how. But it's not how. Why is it not how? What is it? Why? This, this, this is worth the price of admission right here if you get this. Okay? Why is it remember? What's that? When you change things in poetry, it makes it like yes. Out. Yes. So, so when Rob's leading worship and going into the third, the third, ver- the, the final chorus, he takes it up a half a step. He, ta- he takes, he changes the chord change, right? What does that do? It heightens the experience, right? You want to sing louder. It, it's a change that does something in your soul, right? And when poetry does that, when literature does that, when music does that, we're supposed to pay attention. It's like, why the difference? So here's the $100 takeaway question. Why in this book would God want to put the spotlight on remembering? Yeah. Remember, what was the pinnacle? This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It's the remembering of the character and the promises and the purpose of God that is the key to all this. So as we go into the final stanza, so to speak, Jeremiah does a chord change, if you will, to say, don't forget to remember. Do you see it? Does that make sense? So, so guess what? What are we really, really good at doing in grief and sorrow and affliction and suffering? We're really, really good at what? Forgetting. forgetting. This book says what? Remember. Remember. 
Take your soul in hand. Go to the Word of God. Recall His attributes. Remember His promises. Look again at His purposes. And let those things help you in the moment. Those items are what bring the sort of structured stability that we need in the randomness and the feelings of purposelessness in our grief and sorrow. Okay, so I hope if you forget everything else, even the beauty of how God arranges the book is designed to help us not to forget to remember. Okay? So, with that in mind, remember, what does lament mean? It means to express sorrow or grief. This is interesting, too. The, the, the main way that the book challenges us to grieve, because we think, you know, grieve because grandma died, or grieve because, you know, uh, uh, my 401k crashed, or grieve because this relationship in my life is broken. And, and the Bible validates grief when we lose things that we value that are you know, biblically appropriate. But the main area that this book challenges us to really grieve over is not the destruction of a city, not the destruction of a temple. Remember what, remember what Lamentation says? It actually says, uh, what? The sacrifices are not the thing, right? It's not the offerings. It's not the holidays. It's what? I want your heart. That's what's important. So not, not lamenting over the destruction of a beautiful temple, it's lamenting over your own sin and grieving over your own sin. This is interesting. R- remember, um, I have this bad habit, I put the markers down in random places. Um, so this is interesting. Remember, grief, grief does what? Grief follows what we value. You remember that? Grief follows what we value. And the reason that we ought to grieve over our sin more than any other human experience is why? Because we value God as our highest good. Does that make sense? When I sin, I sin against God. And and I, I lose, remember grief is about the loss of something we value. I lose what? His smile, his fellowship. I don't lose my salvation. I don't lose my relationship in his family. Praise the Lord for that. But I lose that, that, that intimacy, that communication, that, that, that friendship that our sin breaks. And so the reason I grieve over my sin more than anything else is I want that back. That's the most valuable thing we can have. Does that make sense? So, uh, so we think about that. That's the real takeaway here is to express sorrow or grief, especially over sin. And certainly... Uh, to mourn for someone, to you know, babies that died, loved ones taken off to Babylon, that's certainly appropriate. And remember, lament means to express that sorrow. And actually, there, there's a technical way the word's used to actually express in terms of a song. Okay? And uh, just a reminder, this is all review. Um, mourning or grief can be expressed because of the death of a loved one, tragedy or sorrowful situation. Uh, we see all of these in the book of Lamentations in Jeremiah, but the most important one is what? Because of the sin or consequences of sin or discipline because of sin. And that is by far what the book of Lamentations is about. You should read this book and, and picture, picture mothers and fathers cannibalizing the bodies of their dead children in the horror of war and say, that's how horrible my sin is against God. That, that physical horror of war is designed 
to communicate to us in a graphic way that's how atrocious and wicked our sin really is. Okay, that, 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 that's what this book communicates. Um, all right, got to keep going here. Um, remember, if you're in Lamentations, flip over to chapter 3. The, the, this pinnacle piece, of course, is the great is your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, this I remember, therefore I have hope. And then that comes, it's, he, he goes over the hill and he starts coming down and he asks these three questions. And, and these are probably the three most important questions in the book. Does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? Verse 37, isn't it true that both good and hard times come from that should be God with a capital G. Verse 38, why should I complain when I suffer for my sins? Right, remember that here? Verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why then should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Those are huge. So in your grief, what do you do? You remember the character and promises of God. Then what do you do? You ask yourself the right questions. Here's three that are important. Is anything happen apart from the Lord's command? Does anything happen apart from God's sovereign providential agency? Answer, no. It feels random. It feels purposeless. But it's not. Second question. Isn't it true that both good and hard times come from God? Yes. If, you know, question number one is true, right? That's important too. Uh, remember what, what um, Job says to his wife um, in, in that, that incredible moment? Shall we indeed accept good from our God and not accept adversity? Imagine a parent that just throws candy at their children. Says, you got an Xbox, I want to get you a second one. And a third one. Uh, I want you to just have anything you want, whatever looks good, whatever makes you feel good, I'm just going to throw it at you. And you're thinking, that kid's not going to live very long. Right? Without medical treatment. Without safety measures. Without... Uh, learning self-control and things that are good and, and right and, and yet w- w- any parent goes well duh of course you can't do that and yet don't we do that with God when God answers our prayers when he gives us what we want oh God is so good he's so gracious God's awesome and then when he doesn't give us what we want or maybe even he gives us what we fear or what's hard we go oh I don't know <laughs> It's the same good, wise, heavenly Father parenting us. And one of the greatest blessings that God gives us is He doesn't give us what we want sometimes. He gives us what we need. He gives us what's going to make us wise and godly and selfless and humble and dependent and Christ-like. So we ask these questions... um, When a hard thing comes, this book challenges us to train our heart to say, shall we not indeed accept uh, adversity as well as good from God? Um, Knowing that that hard times, that that adversity is good in how our Heavenly Father brings it to us. 
And then the final question here, why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Everybody's up in arms. Oh, we can't believe the temple's destroyed. We're going off to Babylon. Everybody's dead. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, for four decades, Jeremiah told you this was coming. And sometimes we do that, right? So sometimes our grief is because we lost a loved one or a friend or you know, our health or some medical or financial or whatever. Sometimes we suffer because we literally shoot ourselves in our spiritual foot. Because we sin, we, we turn away from God, we, we disobey His law, we, we go against His will, and we suffer for it. And Jeremiah says, why are you complaining? Not, not that God is not sympathetic, God, God's merciful and He pities us, but, but it's like, let that sorrow lead you to repentance. That, that, in fact, that's the next verse, right? You know, Let us consider our ways and do what? And return to the Lord. So, those three questions are very important. That's a good question to ask. I mean, not all suffering in your life is because of sin, your own sin. But some of it is, and we need to ask ourselves that question. Uh, lots of themes here, guys. Uh, too many to look at here, but I just put a few of them here. All of these are in your notes. I just sort of tried to compile them here. Have we not learned in this study that God is faithful to His Word? He's faithful to His Word in terms of His promises and and. and uh, uh, his character, but he's also faithful that if he says, unless you change, I'm going to do this, that he's going to do it. You say, that's the Old Testament. That's, that's Jeremiah. That's the nation of Israel. How about this from Galatians? Um, Whatsoever a man sows, how's it go? This he will also reap. Right? You better believe that, that God is faithful to His Word in His promises, His character, but also, but also those divinely good threats that He, out of love for us, warns us with throughout the Bible. Lamentation chapter 1, verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has caused her grief, meaning the nation of Judah. Flip down to chapter 2, verse 17. Why is all this happening? The destruction, the horror, the difficulty. Verse 17 of chapter 2. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His word. Nothing that we read in Lamentations was not warned about ahead of time by God. So we walk away from this book remembering God is faithful to His word. And there are many applications to that. And as a, a footnote to that, but, but it's really the, the purpose behind this, to love and trust something else over God is the highest offense. That's what this is about. Just look back there at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Why does all this happen? The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against His commands. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders perished. What, what is he saying? He's saying... This is all about abandoning the Lord and turning to other sort of spiritual lovers, if you will, and, and, and listening to false counsel. And, and yet the Lord is righteous and we've rebelled against His commands. Don't ever, ever forget that what God wants most of all is your highest trust and love and obedience. And to give those things to someone else or something else is divine treason. And that's why we need a Savior. 
because we all come into this world, what? Paul says we replace the Creator with the creature. We worship and serve other things. This book illustrates the reality of that. Thirdly, God's discipline is a real threat. We saw that, right? To judge and punish those in Israel who failed to believe and to discipline and yet preserve a remnant of true believers. We've seen again chapter 3. I quoted it a moment ago. Chapter 3, verse 20. That God's character and promises are our hope in affliction. That's what turns Jeremiah around. Verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. This is chapter 3, verse 22. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I have hope in Him. And if you back up in Lamentations, just back up into the book of Jeremiah for a few minutes. To Jeremiah chapter 31. One of the last things that Jeremiah prophesied here, it was throughout his ministry, but we see it in its um, grandest form here in chapter 31, verse 27. Or excuse me, verse 31. This is 31, 31. So the book of Jeremiah, so back, back up from Lamentations into the previous book. That's the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, the Mosaic covenant, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. We know that that new covenant that is promised here uh, is inaugurated and ultimately played out in the gospel work of Jesus as we read about it in the New Testament and that whether Jew or Gentile, uh, that we all have access to those promises of the gospel that's presented here as we would repent of sin and trust in Christ as our Savior. So our only hope, (laughs) Jeremiah told me ahead of time, this is the hope, right? The the hope is not, oh, we're going to renovate, we're going to change. The hope is we need a Savior. And and though it would be uh, another 500 years or 450 years before he would even be born, uh, this promise remained and is the hope both then and even to today. We learned, as one of you mentioned, that lament over sin and suffering is a godly response, right? But crying out to God is good, complaining is bad. Complaining used in our normal sense, right? The, the, the negative, accusing God, discontented sort of thing. So lamenting over sin and suffering is a godly response. Crying out to God is good, but I want to guard my heart when I do that, that I don't stray over into grumbling and murmuring, which the Scripture condemns. And finally, grief over sin should lead to repentance. If you got... Well, you're back in Jeremiah. At the, at the end of chapter 3 there, uh, after that section we read in chapter 40, those three questions, then Jeremiah says this, let us examine our, and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. That word return is the word for repentance. Okay, So grief over sin should lead to repentance. When I value God most of all, I grieve the most when I break His law and disobey against His word. And that leads me to repentance. That's how this is supposed to work. Value, sorrow and grief 
repentance. And that's what we see again outlined in the book here. How does God meet us in grief? I just put these in here uh, so that it's a handy reference. We looked at all these a couple of weeks ago. Um, Just remember, God's with us in our grief. He never leaves us. He listens to us when we cry out to Him. He sympathizes with us through Christ, the man of sorrows. Uh, He carries our sorrows and griefs, Isaiah tells us. He gives us rest when we go to Him, Matthew 11. He allows, he shows us the extent of his power and grace and weakness. Remember Paul with his thorn in the flesh? God says, I won't take it away. Why? Because we want to see the extent and power of Jesus and his sufficiency in our weakness. God helps us in grief by helping us to see that the good that we lost was his gift of grace. Remember that? That's Job. Uh, naked I came, naked I returned. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can he say that? Because everything, guys, every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? It's all a gift of grace, which means if we have it, we didn't deserve it, but God was kind to allow us to have it. If God takes it away, we can still bless his name. Why? Because we didn't deserve it in the first place. And that gift is something that he owns and he only lets us borrow, as it were, for a season. So we begin to see everything as his gift of grace. And that that transforms our hearts from from being angry and accusing and, and saying, Lord, thank you that I had this child even for a season. Thank you that I had this spouse even for a season. Thank you that I had prosperity even for a season. I, I enjoyed good health for a season. Instead of murmuring and grumbling. He reminds us uh, of his character and his promises as we saw. He shows us that having him is of greater value than what we lost. Isn't that true? Um, We see that most clearly in Psalm 73, right? Whom am I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This book, guys, challenges us with this. Do you and I value God himself as our highest good? And if we do, and if we have him, we can lose everything else and still have everything in him. And that's a sort of spiritual mathematics that you have to just kind of keep working every day of your life to think like that. But that's one of the things the book challenges us. God is of greater value than whatever else we lose in life. And that's why we can be okay and we can praise Him even in great loss. And He gives us songs to sing. One of the things God helps us is He gives us language. He gives us expression. He he gives us ways of thinking. He gives us songs to sing so that when we're, we're dealing with all of this and that grief and sorrow is weighing us down, the Bible gives direction on how to express that and and relate to God and, and deal with it so that we don't implode. Don't don't keep sorrow to yourself. It is destructive. Sorrow and grief are meant to be expressed in godly ways, and that's part of how God works through it. And providing hope beyond this life, uh, we, we, we look for the new heavens and the new earth, right? We look for the return of Christ and all of that. And then we looked at these last time. We won't repeat these now, but God helps us in our sorrow. Um in these wonderful ways, um, calling us to trust Him, overcoming the world, giving us other believers, and redeeming it such that it works for our good. Um, 
What a journey, huh? Uh, I, I hope that uh, you walk away with uh, God's kindness, His value, thoughts on sadness and grief, and that we have a great God that we can turn to, His character, His promises, uh, that He never leaves us. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that, that, that's a good takeaway, guys, that, that God intends our darkest and most difficult moments to be those when we see Him most clearly and we experience His grace most particularly and, and we, we are drawn to Him more closely uh, than when life is easy. And that's His kindness and wisdom and grace. So, Father, thank You for this book. Thank You for Mr. Jeremiah. We... Uh, we look forward to meeting this man one day. Talking to him personally. Asking him about God's faithfulness in his life for four decades. Asking him what it was like to, to preach so faithfully, so, so uh, regularly, and to be so utterly rejected. Father, we want to be like that. We want to have faith like that. And, and we know that, that Jeremiah's strength was in his God and so we pray that you would help us to know you more and to lean on you and to remember these things that this book has helped us to learn. Father we do thank you that you give us purpose in our grief, that you give us strength in our sorrow and that when we often feel that you are the furthest away and don't care are the times when you're actually the closest to us and demonstrating uh, your most particular care to us. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for our journey together and pray that uh, we would be encouraged in our day of struggle because of what we've learned. In Christ's name we pray.